Well, I assure you that I've been all my life uh, one of the really prominent people fighting this. Uh, if I had been properly supported in 1919, I think we might have strangled Bolshevism in its cradle. But everybody turned up their hands and said, how shocking. And, uh, but I am not anti-Russian. I am violently anti-communist. In part one the reader was introduced to the people who made the Russian Revolution. The reader should be now have a reasonable understanding of what they fought for, what they feared and what they were made of. So did many others around the world at the time, who sympathized with the revolution, from the IWW in the United States to followers of James Connolly in Ireland. But in the corridors of power in the West the workers of Russia were looked on with fear and loathing. Newspapers reported that the Red Guards had raped the women soldiers guarding the Winter Palace that all women over the age of 18 had been made public property. That Lenin and Trotsky were busy murdering one another in drunken brawls over gambling debts. That the Red Guards were all Latvians and Chinese, and had spent the spring of 1918 gunning down crowds of people in the cities. The Russian revolutionaries were referred to as Germano Bolsheviks. Kaltmerbach, the German ambassador, was described by the U.S. ambassador as, quote, the real dictator of Russia. End quote. It was taken as a fact that the Bolsheviks were funded by German intelligence and that the Red Guards were led and trained by German officers. Among many others, Winston Churchill vented anti-Semitic conspiracy theories about the revolution. Western journalists knew so little about the Bolsheviks they confused them with the SR maximalists. The Bolsheviks were an open mass party which rejected terrorism and had hundreds of thousands of members. The SR maximalists were a conspiratorial terrorist outfit without even 1% of the Bolsheviks' membership. But even without the translation problems, many in the Allied camp probably would not have known the difference. They behaved exactly as if a few hundred Bohemian bomb throwers had stumbled into power. This is Battle for Red October, a podcast about the Russian Civil War. You're listening to Episode 5, The Czechoslovak Legion. This podcast is from the 1919 Review. That's 1919review.wordpress.com. There you will find the text version of this episode, which includes images, credits, citations, etc. Sorry in advance for any names that may be mispronounced. who were actually in Russia in the first half of 1918 tried to convey the reality of a popular revolution. Arthur Ransom wrote of the frustration he felt at such messages being ignored. Quote, Shouting in daily telegrams across the wires from Russia I feel I am shouting at a drunken man asleep in the road in front of a steamroller. End quote. Louise Bryant from the U.S. bore witness to a revolution that was remarkable for its clemency and tolerance, that had mass support and that had already made drastic improvements to the lives of workers, women and peasants. On Stockholm on her way out of Russia in early summer, she met a correspondent from one of the biggest press agencies in the U.S., who immediately described the Bolsheviks as scum. Quote, I felt myself forced to ask one more question. If you had to choose between the Bolsheviki and the Germans, which would you prefer? Without hesitating he replied, the Germans. 
Have you ever been in Russia? No. End quote. Why were they so hostile? We can dismiss any notion that their hostility was based on a prophetic fear of Stalinist totalitarianism. On the contrary, they denounced anarchy, chaos, adventurers, etc. The real reasons were as follows. Because the Bolsheviks had pulled Russia out of the war and published the secret treaties between Russia and the Allies. Because the revolution had renounced Russia's debts to the Allied countries and had nationalized foreign-owned industries. Because the Bolsheviks had made a socialist revolution, which threatened the wealthy in every country as long as it survived in any country. Early on, the Soviets tried to come to an understanding with the Allies, Britain, France, the United States, Japan, Italy. With the ever-present threat of German armies on the border, a pragmatic orientation to the Allies made sense. There was cooperation early on, for example in relation to Murmansk. Some Bolsheviks opposed this on principle but Lenin spoke for most when he said, quote, we will accept guns and potatoes from the Anglo-French imperialist bandits. End quote. But the World War was the all-consuming priority. Allied representatives promised aid, if only the Soviets would force their own people back into the trenches. They would not. Allied attitudes hardened. Russia was meanwhile crawling with Allied military missions, officials and agents. By May 1918 this apparatus was busy making links and distributing funds. The wealthy, the officers and the professional classes wanted to continue the war. They felt humiliated and threatened by the revolution, believed that the fatherland, civilization and Christendom were about to perish. And they still possessed enough wealth, connections, self-confidence and skills to fight back. These people formed leagues, networks, councils, and linked up with foreign powers. Funds were transferred, plans laid, promises made. At this point the intelligentsia were deeply conflicted about the revolution. This conflict is dramatized in Pasternak's novel Dr. Zhivago. In this novel, a doctor and poet begins as a supporter of the revolution but is alienated by the experience of the civil war. The 1962 film adaptation is more one-sided. This conflict within the intelligentsia was a key cause of the split in the SRs. Looking at where the two sides stood in May 1918, it is difficult to imagine that they had ever been in the one party. The left SRs held high positions in the Soviets, the fledgling Red Army in the Chika, while the right SRs were in the various leagues and councils of the underground counter-revolution, shoulder to shoulder with Black Hundreds and Tsarist generals. In that milieu they nursed their grudges over the Constituent Assembly and waited for a chance to strike back. Thus the Allies hated the Soviets and possessed the assets on the ground to wage a struggle against them. But counter-revolution would not have assumed the explosive form it did without the Czech Legion. On Russian soil in 1918 there were tens of thousands of Czech and Slovakian soldiers. Czechia and Slovakia were oppressed by the Austro-Hungarian Empire. A Czechoslovak legion was initially recruited from Czechs resident in Russia, then from among prisoners of war. They were induced to fight with the promise of an independent state after the war. By 1917 the Czechs made up a whole corps, numbering in the tens of thousands and fighting on the Eastern Front against the Germans and Austrians, under French officers and advisors. The Czechs did not join in the Russian Revolution. It's not that revolution was some kind of Russian malady, Chinese and Hungarians fought for the Red Army in significant numbers. Many Czechs and Slovaks outside the Legion fought for the Reds and became communists. But while the Russian army disintegrated, the Czechoslovak Legion remained cohesive. The Russian soldier deserted and went home to his land. The Czech had no home. He was fighting against Germany and Austria to secure one, and he was determined to carry on the fight. 
There were somewhere between 30,000 and 70,000 in the Czech Legion. Its cohesion and size were unique at that moment in Russia. Virtually all other military forces, both white and red, were either in the final stages of collapse or just coming into being. In the Legion, then, the Allies possessed a unique asset that could really test the strength of Soviet power. Various telegrams and other communications between British agents on the ground and their superiors in London are referred to in the postscript which Peter Sedgwick has added to Victor Serge's book Year One of the Russian Revolution. Taken together they show the outlines of the Allied plans, which had three main elements. A revolt of the Czech Legion against Soviet General Laverne, after explaining this plan to a colleague, added, quote, but I shall feel guilty because, if our plan succeeds, the famine in Russia will be terrible. End quote. The French had a second misgiving about the plan, they would rather have the Czechs on the Western Front. But these were misgivings, reservations, not opposition. Allied agents, quote, had been plotting for a Czechoslovak revolt since late 1917. End quote. The Czechs themselves, for the most part, wanted to get out of Russia and to fight on the Western Front. Both the Tsar and Kerensky had refused to let them go. The Reds, however, made a sincere effort to grant this wish. But they were bedeviled by the challenges of transporting tens of thousands of armed and potentially hostile soldiers out of a vast, hungry, war-torn and encircled territory. First it was decided that the Czechs were to circumnavigate the globe via North America to get from the Eastern Front to the Western Front. So the Soviets began to move the Czechs from European Russia to the Pacific Ocean. But on April 4th Japan, a member of the Allies, landed an army at Vladivostok in the far east of Russia. Large parts of Siberia fell under Japanese occupation, and it was now impossible to travel east. The Czechs were left stranded, strung out in small detachments all along the Trans-Siberian Railway from the Volga to the far east. The Soviets came up with an alternative plan to move the Czechs north and ship them out of Archangel, and proposed it to the Allies, who by this stage were unwelcome occupiers of Archangel. But the British and French hemmed and hawed about the practicalities. Meanwhile it was far from pleasant for the Czechs to be high and dry at remote railway stations spread across the whole breadth of revolutionary Russia. The delay bred distrust. The Czechs, egged on by SRs and Allied agents, suspected that the Soviets were working hand-in-hand with the Germans and were somehow plotting to hand them over. The Soviets suspected that the Czechs might join the white Allied cause. Czech fears were delusional in that there were no German soldiers within thousands of kilometers of even the westernmost of the Czech detachments. But millions of people were moving across Russia at that moment in the opposite direction to the Czechs, prisoners of war from the German, Austro-Hungarian and Turkish empires, released and being born home. Among them was Josip Broz who would later be known as Tito and lead Yugoslavia. The Czechs identified these former pals as proxy Germans, as a threat. On May 14, Czechs going east and Hungarians going west met at a railway station in the Ural Mountains town of Chelyabinsk. Someone threw something. A brawl erupted, turned into a riot and then a battle. When the dust settled, the Czech detachment was in control of the town. After that, the Czechs went from town to town, driving out Soviet power. They seemed unstoppable. It hardly matters whether the riot in Chelyabinsk was prepared or spontaneous. Serge says that the revolt had in fact been going on for nine days before it. Allied agents met with the leaders of the Czech Legion at a conference in Chelyabinsk on May 23. The Czechs agreed to fight against the Soviets, but declined to march north to Archangel to link up with the other Allied troops. They were open to the idea of setting up a second front against Germany and Russia, a plan which they formally agreed to in July 1918. Their perspective seems to have been that the Bolshevik adventure would collapse and a new Eastern Front for World War I would take shape in Russia. In other words, they assumed the war would outlast the Soviets. But the Soviets survived the war, 
and what the Czechs ended up doing was setting up a new Eastern Front within the Russian Civil War. The plans of Britain and France, too, were partly frustrated. Their forces in the Arctic would have been too little, too late to help the Czechs or the Whites. That would be if the Czechs had consented to march north, which they did not. The plan for White Guard risings fell short by a long way, as we will see in the next post. In short, the French and British conspiracy came off about as well as any plan of such ambition and scale could be expected to, in the confusion and vast distances of revolutionary Russia. Nonetheless the result was an earthquake under the feet of Soviet power. In the words of Maudsley, quote, Revolt flared along the powder trail of the Czech Legion's scattered elements, stretching over 4,900 miles of the Trans-Siberian Railway. End quote. Moscow was cut off from a vast and rich territory, from tens of millions of workers and peasants. At the request of the Allies, 42,000 Czechoslovak war prisoners seized the Trans-Siberian Railroad and held it against the Soviets. In the south, General Denikin was organizing a volunteer army against the Soviets. On the Volga, Chernoff and Avksentiev were raising a people's army against the Soviets. In Kuban, General Borgayevsky was marshalling the Cossacks against the Soviets. A year after the revolution, the Soviet government was surrounded by 14 hostile armies operating on a front 7,000 miles long. They moved their government from Petrograd to Moscow and within the walls of the Kremlin. Under the wing of the Czechs, new white governments sprouted like mushrooms after rain. They expanded, shrank, absorbed one another peacefully or at gunpoint. One of the new governments was led by the right SRs. In early June Czechs were passing through Samara on the Volga on their way east. Local right SR party members convinced the Czechs to stay and to help them seize power. The Czechs agreed. It's possible in this instance that they were motivated more by the Republican and Social Democratic sympathies of many of the rank and file than by French or British agents. On June 9 at dawn they overthrew Soviet power in Samara. That evening the Committee of Members of the Constituent Assembly was set up. The name, abbreviated as Komuch, claimed the dubious electoral mandate which we looked at last time. Komuch is the only significant example of the democratic counter-revolution in action. It is tempting to put scare quotes around the word democratic there, in the formal sense of being elected, the rule of law, democratic freedoms, etc., Komuch was no more democratic than any other force operating in the war-torn Russia of 1918. The Constituent Assembly was in its name, but it never got a quorum of deputies together in one place. According to a report from a Komuch organ, quote, at Simbirsk, most of the Red Army soldiers captured in the town were shot. There was a real epidemic of lynchings. End quote. In August Komuch set up its own repressive police organ to parallel Moscow's Chika. But the term democratic counter-revolution does not refer to democratic forms. It refers to property. Komuch was genuinely bourgeois democratic in the sense that, like the Bolsheviks and left SRs, it settled the land question in favor of the peasants and against the aristocracy. No other white government did the same. It was also authentically bourgeois democratic in the sense that it drove working class control out of the factories and other enterprises and restored ownership to the wealthy.
the Red Guards fought with heroism in the winter of 1917-18. Faced with the German threat, the Soviet state began building up a Red Army from February. The new Commissar for Military and Naval Affairs was Trotsky. It is often said that his only military experience hitherto had been as a war correspondent in the Balkans, but as leader of the Petrograd Soviet both in 1905 and in 1917 he had been an organizer of military operations, crucially the October Revolution itself. But all that was as nothing next to the challenge that now faced him. When the Czechoslovak Legion revolted in the east, the first units of the new Red Army were literally a thousand miles away and facing in the other direction, towards the German armies. If the Czech revolt marked the real start of the civil war, then it should be obvious how little the Red side expected or prepared for, much less planned or wanted, that war. The Red Army had designated the Volga and the Urals as internal not border regions. So little did the Soviet government anticipate civil war in the east that their contingency plan in the event of German invasion, as we have mentioned, was to retreat east and form an Uralo-Kuznets Republic in the Urals and Siberia. That was obviously off the agenda now. Meanwhile on the Volga and in the Urals, local Soviets surrendered or fled without a fight. Where the Red Guards tried to fight back, they suffered humiliating defeats. At this point, after the uprising had begun, Trotsky issued an order for the Czechs to be disarmed. Any captured with arms would be shot, but any who came over to the Reds voluntarily would be treated well. Trotsky held out hope, manifested in repeated appeals right up until November, that the Czechs could be split along class lines, like the Don Cossacks in January 1918. Irregular detachments of workers, thrown together from whatever volunteers presented themselves, had been sufficient in the early months after the October Revolution. But now full-scale civil war had broken out. To win, the Reds needed a real army. This was something they did not have. Facing the Czechs near Chelyabinsk, for example, was a force of 1,000 armed Red Guards, made up of 13 local detachments numbering from 9 members to 570, each with its own commander, each pretending it was autonomous. By the river Kishtama, Red Guards heard a rumor that the enemy were approaching their home villages, whole units deserted the front line to defend their own homes. Nearby, the 7th Ural Regiment was absent from its positions. The commander reported, quote, the men wanted to get themselves dry and have a sleep, they decided to go off only for half an hour but are still sleeping, I can't do any more. End quote. Faced with this kind of resistance, or even sometimes no resistance at all, the Czechs seized town after town. Komoch would set up shop in each locality before the dust had settled. French officers would start to appear in great numbers. Students and Russian officers would go on a reign of terror against local workers, and Komoch would make half-hearted appeals for the killing to stop, and the killing would go on. According to the Czechoslovak nationalist leader Benesh, Quote, the Czechoslovak army on principle shoot every Czech found fighting with the Red Guards and captured by them, for instance at Penza, Samara, Omsk etc., 200 at Samara. End quote. Komuch would place the factories and enterprises back under the control of the bourgeoisie and end fixed grain prices. On the other hand it would confirm the peasants in the ownership of the land. It flew red flags over public buildings and held peasants' conferences. It formed a military force called the People's Army. It even attempted to set up a Soviet, which was hastily disbanded after it passed a Bolshevik resolution. At its height, this state had 12 million people in its territory. It held rich land, key transport links and important cities such as the capital, Samara. It included at its furthest reaches the factory town of Ishevsk. The munitions workers there, who were loyal to the right SRs, rose on their own initiative to join Komuch, a unique episode of an armed workers' revolt against rather than for the Soviets. Quote, 
the Samara Kamuch never paid much attention to distant Ishevsk. End quote. But the Ishevsk workers formed a cohesive unit in successive white armies. Maudsley asks, quote, did the rising foreshadow what would have happened had the People's Army succeeded in striking west? End quote. There are good reasons to doubt it. It is striking that in a territory embracing 12 million people, there was only one Ishevsk. The wealthy classes owed a lot to Komuch, but they did not repay it with loyalty. The well-off citizens were happy to carry out terror in the rear, but in general did not deign to go anywhere near the front line. One business owner summed up the attitude of the wealthy to the struggle between Komuch and the Reds, quote, when two dogs are fighting, a third shouldn't join in. End quote. The right SRs, to the wealthy, were on the same canine level as the Bolsheviks. We can safely assume that the Volga Kulaks, the relatively rich peasants, were happy to be out of the grip of Soviet power, now they could sell their grain at whatever price they liked, or indeed not sell it at all. But the poor and middle peasants showed no marked enthusiasm for the new regime. The right SRs had received a very impressive vote in this region in the constituent assembly elections, but in the end that didn't translate to very much. Lack of peasant enthusiasm was a key weakness for Komuch, because there was nobody else to make up the ranks of the People's Army. Komuch attempted to recruit 50,000 soldiers from the rural population, but only managed 10,000 to 15,000. After this failure 30,000 were conscripted. There was no time to train them up, and arms were in short supply, so a large part of the People's Army was shut up in barracks. There were small, capable detachments under a talented and popular commander named Vokopal. With considerable Czech assistance, these detachments took town after town. But they were always on an exhausting itinerary, being shuttled up and down the Volga fighting the Reds in one place after another. In general, as we have seen, workers were hostile to Komuch. There was only one Ishevsk, only one example of a mass of workers taking up arms against the Soviets. And for every Ishevsk, there was a story of heroism on the part of Red workers. The people of Ekaterinburg, Verkny Uralsk and Troitsk, miners and factory workers, formed a partisan army to oppose the Czechs. This army consisted of 10,000 fighters, followed by civilians in carts with their samovars and household linen. Surrounded, they had to fight their way over mountain ridges and across rivers, covering 1,000 miles in 50 days. Arms were scarce, many fought with pikes and clubs and even old weapons from museums. They manufactured their own bullets wherever they could find equipment. This heroic march occurred around the same time as the one depicted in the Iron Flood. Heroism by itself was not sufficient to win this war. But it mattered. When Service writes that the October Revolution was basically a matter of Trotsky firing up a bunch of disgruntled soldiers, and when Ulam claims that the Bolsheviks deliberately fomented chaos in order to step into a power vacuum, and when a documentary on the Russian Revolution gives no reason for its success except the skillful use of black propaganda, they are wide of the mark. The revolution was not some trick played behind the backs of the people. It would not have survived without the sincere enthusiasm of millions. The heroic marches in the Urals and the Kuban were of minor military significance in themselves. But they were evidence of that enthusiasm and spirit of self-sacrifice, which would prove decisive over the next few years. While Kamuch fought with the Reds to the west, it was waging a peaceful but bitter struggle with a rival white government to its east, the Provisional Siberian Government. The vast expanse of Siberia was populated by Russian settlers and a wide range of indigenous peoples. Class distinctions were not so stark here as elsewhere, and the Communist Party had received only 10% of the constituent assembly votes, as against 25% nationally. Three-quarters of Siberian votes had gone to the SRs. There were solid Red Guard units in Siberia, but they were away beyond Lake Baikal far to the east, battling the warlord Semyonov and Ungern. 
Meanwhile there were several Cossack hosts ready to kick off rebellion at any moment, the Siberian host alone numbered 170,000, and an underground white network of 8,000 officers, one-third of them concentrated in the city of Omsk. When the Czech revolt took place, all this dry kindling went up in flames. The Cossacks and the officers rose up. Here is on the Volga, Czech assistance was key, there was only one city, Tomsk, which the Siberian whites captured without their assistance. But Soviet power was wiped off the map of Siberia. Workers took to the forests and formed red partisan armies. From the chaos emerged a new power, centered on the city of Omsk, the provisional Siberian government, founded at the end of May in Omsk. This government flew a white and green Siberian flag, white for snow and green for the coniferous trees of the taiga. This was a nod to a tradition of Siberian regionalism, which the provisional Siberian government managed to bring on board, albeit in a way that was only skin deep. From here on out, we'll call this regime, Omsk, for short. It was a stern conservative regime which represented the rifles and sabers of Tsarist military remnants rather than any popular mandate. Here the SRs were even more popular than on the Volga. But here, even more so than on the Volga, this support base punched below its weight. This proved how passive and confused that vote was. There was an elected Siberian regional Duma, which Komuch and the SRs attempted to convene, but the Omsk government shut it down. This was one of many significant clashes between Komuch and Omsk. At this point it's worth getting ahead of ourselves chronologically to look at the trajectory of some of the other governments in a similar mold to Komuch. The British in Persia sponsored an uprising in the Transcaspian region on 11-12 July. The Reds were chased out, and a Transcaspian provisional government led by SRs and Mensheviks ruled there until January when it was replaced by the far more conservative Committee of Social Salvation. In July 1919 this government merged with the white regime of General Denikin in the south of Russia. In short, this Central Asian equivalent of Komuch was cannibalized by the reactionary generals. The very different geographical climate of North Russia saw the same political developments, only at a faster pace. On August 2 the British forces landed at Archangel. On the same day, the Archangel Soviet was overthrown in a military coup, and the supreme administration of North Russia came to power. This was staffed by right SRs and led by Tchaikovsky of the Popular Socialist Party. On September 6 the local military forces, supported by the Allies, overthrew this moderate socialist government. Tchaikovsky was first deposed, then brought tentatively back into the fold, then exiled. Smil writes, quote, On the day of Tchaikovsky's departure, January 1, 1919, there duly arrived at Archangel General Ek Miller, who was to become military governor of the region for the remainder of the civil war in the north. They must have passed each other in the harbor. Socialist democracy was leaving Russia as white militarism disembarked. End quote. The democratic counter-revolution had suffered the same fate in Central Asia, and in the Arctic Circle, a government of so-called moderate socialists had come to power with the help of right-wing authoritarian officers and allied interventionists, only to realize sooner or later that it existed on their sufferance, that it had no social base of its own, that in the polarized conditions of civil war the fate of so-called moderates could not be a happy one. In a later post we will trace the same tension between moderate socialists and militarism in the relationship between Komuch and Omsk. But in the next post we will switch our focus to the seismic events that occurred behind red lines in July. <laughs> <laughs>